I have some really exciting news for listeners of the Lifestyle Investor Podcast. Most people think lifestyle investing is about making more money or creating additional passive income streams. And while that is part of it, the most savvy lifestyle investors understand that having a solid tax strategy is fundamental and really foundational to creating wealth. I firmly believe that having the right tax strategy is the single best investment that you can make. I know tax strategy isn't the sexiest topic, but once you understand a few key elements to the IRS playbook, the compounding benefit you receive year after year is enormously significant. In fact, we have members inside the Lifestyle Investor Mastermind who have used these strategies and have saved hundreds of thousands of dollars, and in some cases, millions of dollars. This is not a nice to have if you're interested in growing your wealth. This is a must. In our brand new tax strategy masterclass, I have hand-selected and shared the details of the 28 most valuable strategies to help you increase your tax savings this year and for years to come. Plus, if you want to hire a top-tier tax strategist, it can easily set you back tens of thousands of dollars, if not more. And you want to make sure that you have the best, most accurate information to ensure that you're hiring the right person for you. That's why we included a whole section with advice, resources, and multiple interviews with my personal tax specialists to help you build a bulletproof tax team, but for a fraction of the cost. The entire tax strategy masterclass was designed for people like you who want to keep more of their hard-earned money without having to sift through the complicated tax code. If you're interested, head over to lifestyleinvestor.com forward slash tax to learn more about the course or set up a free consultation call with our team at lifestyleinvestor.com forward slash consultation. Again, that's lifestyleinvestor.com forward slash tax. I focus on financial sovereignty. So financial being a key piece of that. So not only do I look at money as an asset, but like my health as an asset, my freedom as an asset. And those are all things that I should be doing. And, and the money is the base of that. That money allows me to get those other things I need. I just bought you know, a ranch out there in Texas out by you. And so I'm increasing my options to increase my sovereignty. Welcome to the Lifestyle Investor Podcast. Imagine being able to earn passive income, build long-term wealth, while gaining total freedom from your business or job. That's what lifestyle investing is all about. I'm your host, Justin Donald, and in less than two years, my investments drove enough passive income for both my wife and me to quit our jobs. And now I want to show you how to do the same. I want to teach you how to create wealth without creating a job. You'll learn the exact same investment strategies I use to multiply my net worth to over eight figures all before the age of 40. If you want to learn all about low-risk cash flow investing, achieve financial freedom, and live the life you truly desire, this podcast is going to show you exactly how to do it. Today, I'm talking to Mark Moss. Mark is an investor and entrepreneur with a passion for helping others avoid the same mistakes he made so they too can live a life by design, not by default. Mark has founded seven companies, each of which have scaled beyond seven figures within the first year, one of which was a massive exit to a Fortune 500 company and one of the biggest medical equipment firms in the world. Mark has also fixed, flipped, and developed over $25 million in real estate, invested in private businesses, invested in gold mines, oil fields, and new technologies. In our discussion, you'll hear the story of how Mark lost a multi-million dollar fortune early into his entrepreneurial journey and what he did to rebuild his wealth faster than ever. We also talk about financial sovereignty, why the financial system is rigged and working against you, the importance of holding hard assets, and the great reset that everyone should be preparing for. That and a whole lot more. One more thing before we get to today's interview. 
Mark has a special gift for Lifestyle Investor podcast listeners. He's giving away his free report, The Four Pillar Blueprint, which will show you the easiest and most effective way to grow and protect your wealth through this pandemic and the years ahead. To get access to this gift, visit justindonald.com forward slash 67. Thanks for listening. And without further delay, my conversation with Mark Moss. What's up, Mark? So glad to have you on the show. Thanks for joining. Yeah, Justin, honored to be here. Uh, man, we've a uh, few times we've been able to get together and talk. I've enjoyed it every time. So I'm looking forward to the kind of deep dive today. Well, I got to, you know, just pay you the compliment that like every time we have a conversation, I'm left wanting more. And so, I mean, you're the exact type of person I love hanging out with. Uh, not to mention, we've got a whole bunch of mutual friends uh, yeah. that, you know, you know, between, you know, Mike Dillard and uh, Hal Elrod and Cody Sanchez and Dan Held and whoever else, you know, it's, uh, you know, it's a, a pretty fun network that we've got. So for sure, there, there's so much I feel like we can cover. And uh, man, I feel like an hour is hardly going to do it justice. But I want to jump in because you are such uh, an expert, you're the foremost expert in a lot of different areas. And um, I just love how you stay very relevant with the times and you pivot based on what's most important to you, to your lifestyle, to just what you believe in at your core. And so I think that's cool. But and I shouldn't even say but I think that's cool. And what I would like to do is I, I'd like to figure out kind of where you got this investor IQ from. Like, how did you decide that um, you wanted to get into investing? Because you've been doing this since like high school or right out of high school, right? That's it. Yeah. Yeah. So tell us about that story. It's interesting. And, and it's something I've actually spent a lot of time with uh, deep introspection, trying to figure out, trying to reverse engineer that because I'm trying to figure it out for my kids. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, how can I put this into my kids? And, and uh, the short answer is, I, I, I don't know how. <laughs> you know, there's uh, a lot of work I do now is on this uh, history and cycles. And a lot of people have probably heard this generational theory. And it's this, this fourth turning, which is uh, hard times create strong men, strong uh, men create great times, great men create weak or weak men and weak men create bad times. And so I think about those generations. And so my grandfather was a farmer in Iowa. My father grew up on a farm and was a hard worker, but not as hard as my grandfather. My father was then a contractor who was a crazy hard worker and made me start working construction with him when I was a kid. So I'm a hard worker, but not near as hard as my dad. As a matter of fact, I vowed to myself, I would never do a job I had to get dirty in because I hated that much. And now my kids are just weak. <laughs> That's like four generations, right? But I guess uh, to kind of answer that question, to rewind the clock. So I think a couple of big things were when I've reverse engineered this and tried to look at one, as I said, uh, my dad grew up on a farm. He's a super hard worker. He was a contractor, a flooring contractor. So a construction worker is you know, entrepreneur, right? He's an entrepreneur and um, he just figured out how to make money. Now he was, uh, when I was born, he was an officer in the air force. He flew jets in Vietnam. He was in the Air Force when I was born, but he left the Air Force and he just figured out how to make money. And I say that because that's how I've always been. There's never been a point where, and I've been broke many times, but there's never been a point where I was like, shoot, I should go look for a job. I've just, that, that thought's never crossed my mind. It's always, how can I make money? So I think it was modeled, right, um, to me as, as I was growing up with the, in, that, in that household. I think another big piece of it isn't really so much about the business, but more about the environment I grew up in which is um, my parents were probably very non-traditional in a sense where they were grassroots politically active. This is in South Texas when I was growing up as a kid. Politics is something that's discussed around our table on a still ongoing basis, not just with my family, but my extended family as well. So we kind of grew up looking, in, looking in on the conservative side of things. As a kid, I was homeschooled for a number of years, and that wasn't popular at the time. As a matter of fact, it was very frowned upon at the time. And I think I, I say those things because I think it allows me to have this very open and creative mind. And I think one of the biggest problems with school today is it, it takes away creativity in kids. It teaches them what to think and how to regurgitate things instead of how to think. And so I think that's a, that was a big piece of it. And then, uh, like I said, my dad made me start working construction when I was like 10 years old, and I hated it. He would literally drag me crying to the job site, and, I, and he didn't care. I just had to work. Now, my kids complain about having to pick up the dishes off the table. I'm like, ah, fine, I'll just do it, you know? Um, but he would just make me do it. And, um, and then I remember like times as a kid, it was like, 
and, and things were just different when you and I were kids, you know, we didn't have the excess that we have today. And, uh, and even in a middle-class family, we just, you know, didn't have that stuff, but it was like, dude, you want a bike, like go mow yards. Right. Like, so I did. And so I'd pass out flyers and I'd mow my neighbor's yards. And like my mom would go to Costco and buy us boxes of candy. And we'd sell it in our front yard when kids were coming home from school and, and just doing stuff like that. And so I, I guess that's probably what put that into me, I think. And I think the other big thing that I've kind of reverse engineered is that maybe we were middle-class, you know, maybe on the lower end of that middle-class. I don't know. I mean, we're contractors. I don't really, whatever, middle-class, but my dad was like so adamant of us going to like private Christian schools. And uh, we couldn't really afford that, but he would always like do trade outs with the school, figure out ways to get us in there. And I think, you know, I've seen research that shows that people from middle class tendency to go further ahead because they've seen how those rich people live, but they don't quite have it. And it builds that like pressure. And so, um, you know, hanging out with a bunch of rich kids in in private schools, like they had brand new cars and I drove the biggest piece of junk there was, right? Uh, we never went on vacations growing up, but but my friends would take me on their vacations to Hawaii or snowboarding with them. And so maybe that was a big piece of it. So those were probably the big levers that I can kind of think of. Yeah, that, that's great. You know, there's so many things in there I, I'd love to kind of dissect. I mean, one of them, I love that homeschooling is cool now. You know, there, there was a season where you didn't want to homeschool or you didn't want your kids to be homeschooled, or maybe even the kids knew that they're like, oh, you know, it's homeschool. Now it's, it's become very popular. And I think that that's good because it creates a different education system. Um, and I do think it's important to have these options, regardless of where your kids go to school. I do think that you should have a lot of rights around your choices there. And a lot of, a lot of, you know, countries, uh, you know, places around the world kind of mandate a certain type of education. And so it's nice that we have the freedom to kind of pick and, and choose. But I like having education outside the system because we do need people thinking in a way that is not funneling a certain education or information stream to us. You and I had very similar upbringings. You know, I, I very much like just I, I remembered so many uh, just in you hearing hearing you talk about uh, how your dad was with you and what he did and and so much. I mean, I drove this 89 Honda Civic uh, hatchback wagon that was like this little go-kart and uh, certainly had, I had a, I had an 81 Subaru station wagon hatchback, <laughs> the wagons, man. And for sure, uh, you know, sometimes I would pull up and it was like, oh man, everyone's got a nicer car than me, but I bought that thing with my own money. It was $3,500 or $3,600. And that was all my money. And, uh, and I worked hard to get that. And there was an appreciation for it. And all my friends kind of called it the go-kart. So it ended up becoming uh, a little more palpable, but you said something that I think was the biggest distinguishing comment that you made about kind of where you are and how you got to where you are today. And it was this, you said, my mindset was, how can I make money? Not, I need to get a job. It's how can I make money? Which is, that's how I always thought as well. And I, I love hearing that. But inside of that, you kind of figured out a few things that you were good at. So early on, I think you bought some homes, but you also started some businesses. Let, let's start with the real estate and then let's go into some of the businesses because you had a lot of success there too. Yeah. So um, I never had a job. I, you know, I worked for my dad. I played sports through high school. So my parents didn't really make me get a job. And uh, my senior year in high school, my buddy's like, hey, you want to work at my dad's engineering company? I'm like, I don't know. What are we going to do? He's like, we're going to sweep the floors and take out the trash. And like, okay, whatever, right? So I started doing that for a couple hours a day. It was this little tiny engineering company. And uh, there was like three or four engineers working there. And they got hired to design this um, dental camera. There's no, no, no such thing in the world as that at the time. And uh, they designed this little camera that goes in your mouth and looks at your teeth. And now everybody has seen those by this time. But at this point, there was none available. And so they designed that. And then it was like... Um, this company said, Hey, now could you build a couple for us? So they started making a couple and then, Hey, could you make a couple more and increase production, et cetera. And so this really had just started ramping up and they started making these, this medical equipment. And, uh, like right when I graduated high school and I wanted, my parents really, really wanted me to go to college. I have three sisters. All three of them went to college. Um, they really wanted me to go to college. And I was like, okay, I want to go to Colorado. Um, I want to snowboard there. I want to start a snowboard company when I get out. And at the last minute, my parents are like, we just, we can't afford to send you there. Like you, you can't, it's not going to happen. Like just go to a community college first, you know? And I was like, 
nope, then I'm just going to start working full time. And my parents like, no, don't do it. Once you start making money, you'll never go back. That's what my mom told me. And she was right. Um, and so um, right out of high school, this company was just starting to grow. And so I just, and it's funny because it's the only job I've ever had in my life. And um, I mean, working for somebody and I never even filled out a job application because I was literally just working at my friend's dad's company for two hours a week. But then we started working full time and um, this company grew, 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 grew. And I think the big key that I, that I try to think about and try to tell other people is like, whenever you're working, you don't know what you want. Trying to ask a kid today what they want to do in life is ridiculous. I, I, I never would have guessed that I'd be doing what I'm doing today, even five years ago or 10 years ago. Um, and so I didn't know, but I started working. And I'm always looking like, what's the next step? Where's the angle? Where can I move to? And I think that's the mindset that people have to have. So I started working in this company. We started making this stuff. And I started working in this division, making this piece. And I worked in this division, making this piece. And it finally grew big enough that we had to start repairing the equipment. So I helped start a repair department. And then I was doing that. And then one guy left and started a competitor company. And then this guy left, started a competitor company. So then I started knowing everybody in the industry. I moved up into marketing. And then I, at 21, I started uh, traveling around the country and the world running the trade show division and this big medical equipment company. And so I started just, you know, 21, every big city, about eight stops a year. And uh, just always looking for the next angle, meeting the sales reps out there, seeing what they're doing. And this was all brand new to me, right? I'm just learning all this as I go. And uh, I realized that, um, you know, they had all these customers, but they didn't really care about the customers. They just want to sell new equipment. And so all these reps were messaging me all the time. Like, Hey, Mark, can you help me out? I got this customer. The company's not helping me with and blah, blah, blah. So I started a repair company on the side and in the night at night, I would repair equipment and, um, it took off pretty well. And, um, at first I kind of did on the side for a while and I had some partners and it was kind of like, it wasn't really going good. Um, but finally I kind of doubled down, committed to it, um, quit, quit that job and just started this repair business full time and grew it pretty fast. And then, um, I knew everybody in the industry because I had to put my time in and really built those bridges and, uh, it grew really big. And, um, about seven years later, I had a fortune 500 exit with that company and, and to the biggest medical company in the world, Henry shine. It's a four $5 billion company. Wow. That's incredible. Your first company and you had a monster exit. And here's what's even more impressive though, because you have started, I believe it's eight different companies, all of which are seven or eight figures or higher, uh, all within 12 months. Yeah. Yeah. So that one wasn't, that was like my first business. So that one took a long time to scale. And, um, you know, I didn't know anything about anything. I didn't go to school. I don't have no MBA. Right. And so I'm just kind of figuring out as I go along, I'm an entrepreneur, I can figure things out. And so I was doing some marketing and I was, um, I was doing direct mail. So I was just literally like printing out a letter, put folding it in an envelope and send it to, to these dental offices. And I would do as many as I could fold by hand and, and send out. And, uh, business was kind of like this and, you know, I, I made good money on a repair, so I didn't have to do that much. I was young at the time, whatever. And, um, I remember at one point though, that, um, I hit a, I hit a lull and I didn't have any money and I was broke and, um, I had to go work for my dad doing tile. Like I had to, I had to get some money. And uh, I was so mad that I had to do that because I never wanted to do that again. No offense to construction people, but when you grew up in South Texas and the humidity and the heat, and you're 10 years old and you're carrying buckets of mud on your hands and knees on the floor, like, I just never wanted to do that again. So no offense to anyone getting dirty, but I was like, that life isn't for me. So I had to go back and do it again. And that was just like the kick in the pants that I needed. And so I got enough money. And instead of doing bits and pieces of direct mail, I mailed the whole list at one time. It was like, I don't know, a couple thousand bucks it cost me to do that. And I got my whole family. I have a big family. And everybody helped me stuff envelopes at the kitchen table. And we got all this mail. And I just, boom, just dumped it out there. And that just just took the business off and I never looked back. And from then I've always been a marketer first. So um, that's the one big problem I see with people in business today. They want to be the best operator. It's all sales and marketing. And so I'm a marketer, right? And so um, that, that really lit the fire under me. And then I just started dumping millions of pieces of direct mail out and the business just cranked from there. And what are some of these additional businesses that you got involved in? So that business, I mean, I, I, I think I quit my job. So these all overlap, right? I'm, I'm, I'm a, I do lots of things at the same time, right? As you do, right? Um, so that was in, um, I, start, I quit that job and started that business in 1997 and I sold it off in 2004. But in 1995, so while I was still working full time, I started buying real estate. 
So in 1995, um, in California, the banks had gone through from 89 to 92, there was this big real estate crash. And the banks were sitting on just all this, this repoed property they couldn't get rid of. And in 1995, they were basically selling it to anybody who would take it off their hands, zero down, just come take it, fix wow. it up, HUD repos, whatever. And um, I didn't know anything about this, um, but your network is your net worth. My best friend, my roommate, his grandfather owned a local bank and had helped helped some Mexican kid that barely spoke English up in Los Angeles um, to start doing this and was making millions of dollars. So he's like, hey, take my grandson under your wing and teach him. And it just happened to be my roommate. So I saw what he was doing. He didn't take me under his wing nor teach me or anything, but I saw what he was doing. And I was like, ah, that's what I want to do. And so I found a, uh, it was a duplex. It was $80,000, about an hour away from my house. Um, I got it zero down. It was a VA repo at the time, zero down, but I didn't have the money for closing costs. It was $3,000. And I didn't even have that. And so I brought on a partner and uh, we split the closing costs. We got some credit cards and uh, we did all the work ourselves for six months. And I made like 30 grand on that, on that first deal. And I was like, boom, that's it. And so I kept that going. And over the next decade, I fixed and flipped like over 150 houses and wow. developed real estate, you know, developed over $25 million of real estate from the ground up, mixed use commercial, et cetera. So that was going. And then um, in the late nineties was the dot-com boom. And in like 98, 99, um, I remember my roommate quit his job and he's like day trading these like things called internet stocks, kind of like what people do today with cryptocurrencies. And then um, in like 99, anything with the dot com was like just getting tons of money. So we started, me and my buddy started a business to, um, it was at the time, like 99, it was like the first rewards thing where like you would shop with rewards and then we donate money to your cause kind of a thing. You see that all over the place today. And, and we had to set up a server in my office and we had to build it because there was no like cloud hosting, none of that. And I swear we were like this close to getting super rich. And then the whole dot-com thing imploded and that, that fell apart. Um, so that one didn't work out too well. Um, but then in 2001, at the bottom of that market, I was like, hey, I want to sell. I was, I was into motor, motorcycle racing. I was like, I want to sell motocross stuff online. And um, in the motocross magazine, there was no dot-com anywhere in the magazine. If you wanted to buy stuff back then, you literally had to cut out the thing mail order and mail in a check and they'd mail it back to you. <laughs> and there was no Shopify, no, none of this, right? So it was, cost me like 25 grand to build this website. And uh, I had my medical equipment business. So I was like, hey, I'll just use the warehouse. I'll warehouse the equipment. I'll use the same shipping and receiving department. So I'll kind of double that up. And I went to these brands and I said, hey, I want to sell your stuff on my website. And they laughed at me. I said, no one would ever buy anything online. That was ridiculous. And I'm like, well, wow. I, I beg to differ and I spent all this money on this website and I'll just buy your product and it's on me if I don't sell it. And they said, we don't even want our stuff sold on your website. Holy cow. So that was 2001. And then I built that business till, till 2008. So I had the real estate thing was going. I had the e-commerce business was going. I had the medical equipment business was going all at the same time. And I'm in my you know mid to late 20s at this point. And then... Um, in uh, 2000, like I said, 2005, I sold the medical business. In 2008, I sold the, motor, uh, the motocross e-commerce business. And that's where things went wrong. Mm -hmm. So I had those two businesses. Plus I had the real estate business. I had sold, I had owned over 200 real estate doors at one point, uh, units at one point across the country. And I sold all my cash flow properties. I sold both my businesses, big exits on oh, everything. Oh, no. And I put it all into developing some monster like commercial projects in Southern California. Ugh. And then, uh, you know, all of a sudden 2005, 2006, 2007 starts coming. I'm like, oh shoot, like this market's going to melt down. This isn't good. I started trying to get rid of whatever I could, but some of these projects are four or five year projects. Like you right. don't just walk away from them. And uh, I got crushed. I went from, uh, I had sold selling all these businesses, had all this property. Um, I just got married, built a sick custom home, six bedroom, six car garage, elevator, white water views, the whole deal, having my first kid. And then I went to owing millions of dollars in the hole and being oh, broke. That is rough. And and while having your first child, you know, during pregnancy, having a child, I mean, it's hard in that first year. You know, all parents know this. It's it's chaotic just on the home front, uh, just blocking and tackling. And uh, oh, just and it, and it, and it, not only was it so bad where like I lost like all my assets, but um, all my income. Like I had gotten rid of yeah. all my businesses, all my income properties. So it was like everything was tied up into that which of course hindsight seems like a horrible idea at the time. And I was young and I grew up, you know, I grew up in Southern California doing action sports. I've, I've broken all my bones. I've metal in all four limbs of my body. And so I'm used to the risk, 
so anyway, yeah, that, that sucked. It wasn't good. <laughs> well, and, and talk about this because this has to be a huge contrast um, because you could have gone pro in a, a myriad of different things, right? You could have, you, you were a surfer, you're a snowboarder, yeah. motocross, the whole nine yards. You could have just gone one of those paths, uh, which, you know, early on, I think I wanted to you thought you were going to do. And so now you go, you're like, oh, this is great. I decided to be an entrepreneur. And now it's like, oh, I just lost everything. Actually, I'm not even, I owe millions of dollars. Yeah, it was Where bad. are you at at this point uh, emotionally? Well, I mean, I think you could imagine where I was at emotionally. It was very, very, very difficult to deal with. I have a lot of friends that and associates that I worked with at that time who still to this day, a dozen years later, have never recovered from that, you know, and they're just working menial jobs. They've just never gotten it going again. I think the fact that um, I have broken all my bones and I have gotten back on the dirt bike and hit that jump again. Um, like I said, it just, I'm used to it. I'm just like, okay, like that sucked. <laughs> Let me try that again. And, uh, so I think that that resiliency was there, but then, yeah. How do you start over? Right. I did it once. How could I do it again? You know, well, this is the brilliance you, you have. You, we've seen this before with millionaires and billionaires that go bankrupt, but they earn that wealth back really fast in a quarter, a fraction of the time because you've got expertise. And so I'm curious to hear how you were able to get back so yeah, quick. And I did. And I did. So a couple of things. So one, I was like, I'm really good at making money. Like I've done really well making money, but what is this whole financial casino going on in, in uh, you know New York that is seemingly controlling my life and I have no idea about or no control over. So I need, cause like I'm playing a game on the runway here, but there's a game at 30,000 feet that I, that that's affecting my life. And I don't know what that is. So one, I have to figure that out. So that's the first thing. So like I started digging deep into research and what is this financial system and what is the federal reserve? And I became a gold bug and I started thinking sound money is the answer. And it's the federal reserve that had all these problems and blah, blah, blah. So I dug deep into that. I learned this concept that money is like energy. It doesn't disappear. It transfers. So that means when, when, when I lost my money, someone else got my money and I didn't like that. I may not be the most competitive guy, but that didn't sit well with me. And so I vowed to myself, I vowed to my family, like that will never happen to me again. And so for the last 12 years, I've spent my time studying this phenomenon known as wealth transfers. And there's a bunch of different reasons why they happen and ways they work, but I always want to be on the receiving end of the wealth transfer and not on the giving end. So that was one thing. But how did I get back? Like, how did I pay my bills? Like, that was a big problem. Like, what am I even going to do right now? Like, how do I, how do I get back from there? And so again, how can I make money? What can I do to make money right now? What skills do I have? What do I know how to do? Who could benefit from those skills if I was to offer them to them? And what can I do to make money? That's just what, it, you know, some people have their labor. Hey, can I go dig a hole for you? Right. Could I paint your fence? Right. If that's what you have for me, I had different skills. I knew how to do marketing. Right. And, uh, what I tell people is that, especially young people that are trying to figure this out is that you get paid for the value you provide. And if you want to make more money, you provide more value, but really um, align yourself as close as you can to the money supply. So that's sales and marketing. If I said, hey, Justin, if I bring you a million dollars of sales in the next 12 months, would you give me a hundred grand of that? And of course you would. Sure. Right? Without course, a doubt. Without a doubt. Anybody would. I could I could go down to my you know downtown and walk into any store and, and give them that deal and they would take it. And so how can I do that? Sales and marketing. So anyway, I had been doing this online thing for quite a while with the motocross business and doing all the marketing with my medical equipment business. And um, what happened is I had a buddy who was doing mortgages and um, he's like, Hey, if you, um, if you could like drive leads to me and I close some of these deals, I could give you, you know, a bunch of money on every deal, you know? And I was like, okay, that sounds pretty attractive. And um, I didn't, I'd never done anything in that, in that niche before that area, but, um, you know, I knew enough about real estate and whatever. So I figured it out. So I, I, I built like a landing page. I think it was like lead pages at the time, which I didn't know. I never had done that before, but I built like this lead page, like a lead capture page. I set up a Google pay-per-click campaign, which I didn't really know a whole lot about, but I kind of figured that out. And I set up this whole campaign, Google pay-per-click, going to lead things, send the leads directly to him via email. And, um, really did that all over a weekend. And then I hopped on my dirt bike and I rode from the California border to the tip of Baja, Mexico to Cabo San Lucas. It took me six or seven days. And when I got there, I got to the hotel and I opened up my laptop and I looked at my emails and it was just like, cha-ching, 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 cha-ching. And I was like, Whoa, <laughs> <laughs> like I made a bunch of money and I was riding my dirt bike. And, That's uh, great. so I, so 
obviously I went deep into that. I doubled down into that. And I spent about the next decade of my life doing lead generation. And so I started driving leads to mortgage companies and debt companies and debt settlement and tax attorneys and uh, you know whatever type of financial services that I kind of got into that niche. I became the, me and my partner were the largest solar home, residential solar lead generators in the United States for a while. Wow. So I dove super deep into that and, and I loved it because uh, the piece that we haven't really picked up on, but you mentioned like I, I could have done this pro surfing or motocross or snowboard. I wanted to do those things. And, and I think one of the things about the job thing is like, I wanted to do those things. I didn't go pro, but how could I keep that lifestyle and make money? It wasn't like, how can I make money? And then what do I do with my time I have left over? It's like, no, how do I keep my lifestyle and make money to support that? Like, I mean, right now it's January at the time of this recording. Like, I mean, if it starts snowing right now, like I might hop on a plane tonight and be out in Utah and go catch it. Right. Like if there's a big swell showing up in Hawaii, I might be on a plane tomorrow and go catch that. Right. And like, I want to have that lifestyle. I can do that. And so this lead generation business was perfect because as I said, I could set up a campaign, hop on my dirt bike, ride for seven days and then have money. And so, um, it fit perfect with my lifestyle and I, and I, yeah, did that for quite a while. That's incredible. And I, I just love, again, it's not, the question isn't, do I want lifestyle or do I want to make money? It's, how can I have both? It's an abundant mindset of like, how do I accomplish all the things that I want to accomplish? And quite frankly, you losing millions of dollars uh, is quite possibly one of the best lessons you ever learned, though in the moment, it's incredibly painful. And by the way, I have experienced something similar. Uh, it doesn't sound like I've lost as much, thank goodness, uh, because I was still able to learn some lessons. Maybe you learned some much better lessons than me. Um, but the truth is, some of the best lessons I ever learned were through the pain of making poor decisions, poor investments, not doing enough due diligence, thinking that I knew more than I did at that point in time because I only had you know, a, a select part of maybe an economic cycle. Uh, so I, I didn't know everything the way that I know it today. You didn't know everything the way you know it today. And now you're better equipped. You're better equipped not only for yourself and your family, but to teach other people these lessons that you've learned. And I, I'd love to get into... Uh, just kind of your worldview on financial sovereignty and financial freedom. You know, I talk a ton about financial freedom, financial independence, and I love um, you really, you know, embody financial sovereignty. I'd love to hear how you define that. Yeah, yeah. So um, there's a quote that I love, and it's um, smooth seas never made a skilled sailor. You know, that's nice. You have to, you have you, the only way to get patience is to wait. The only way to get stronger is to tear your muscles down. Like it's, it's the only way, right? Uh, Mike, the famous one, Mike Tyson says, everyone has a plan until they get punched in the face, right? That's right. Yeah. It's definitely, it's, there's a lot of lessons in there. A lot of lessons, uh, you know, personally on resilience, on um, adversity, on, you know, all these things. One thing I would say, and, and you've mentioned your losses, I think um, the one thing that you would probably agree with is that when you make a lot of money and it, and you make it pretty easy and you make it pretty fast, you don't really pay attention to where it's going and you start making some really reckless decisions. So you mentioned some of yours, maybe you didn't do proper due diligence and stuff. I think, you know, I've had those same mistakes and a lot of people that haven't achieved that level of success think it's kind of ridiculous, but keeping your money is way harder than making it. Totally. Totally. Agree. <laughs> and people that haven't made it don't understand that, but it's way harder. Yeah, it's and it's a whole different skill set. That's the other tricky thing. It's one skill set to earn it. It's another skill set to grow it or at least maintain it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So um, as I said, right after 2008, I got my butt kicked. It was uh, devastating. It was painful. And you know, a lot of that you asked, you you said that you didn't lose as much um, as I did. And so I think the deeper the wound, the deeper the impact and motivation. So like I was extremely wounded, and I was extremely motivated to go figure this out. And so, um, like I said, I dove into my education. I knew there was something in my education that was the problem. And so I started pouring into that. And like I said, started digging into the financial system, studying the Federal Reserve, started studying all this stuff and um, became a gold bug. And um, the more I started to learn about all this stuff, you can't unsee this stuff once you see it. And then, uh, you know, you start becoming very disillusioned in the system. You start realizing how rigged it really is. And um, 
and we're at a point today where I'm uh, I'm very sad for uh, most people who don't understand what's going on because it's it's a shame. They've done the best that they can with the information they have, and they just don't understand the whole game is rigged against them. And that's what I didn't understand in 2008. Even knowing that, it's still difficult what to do because the game is so rigged against us. But I kind of got disillusioned with the whole system. Like I said, kind of grew up in this in this political home. Uh, my grandfather was a World War II vet. My father was a Vietnam vet. I thought I would go to war one day. I just that's just how I grew up. And um, and here we are. Yeah, in a war. Financial sovereignty to me, um, the way I think of sovereignty is having the right to direct my life as I see fit in a way that leads me to my own ends. So today we think we have freedom, but really we have coercion. Hey, Justin, you can choose A or B, right? You can either take this medicine or you can lose your job. It's your choice. That's no choice because either one I choose leads me to their ends right? That's not the same as liberty. Liberty is freedom of coercion. I can direct my life as I see fit. Um, So that's the way that I look at the word sovereignty. And I like to think about, as you said, I focus on financial sovereignty. So financial being a key piece of that, um, but then sovereignty. So not only do I look at money as an asset, but like my health as an asset, my freedom as an asset. And those are all things that I should be doing. And, and the money is the is the base of that. That money allows me to get those other things I need. It can allow me to buy, like I have a, a built, I'm building a house in Mexico right now. So if uh, I just bought, you know, a ranch out there in Texas out by you. And so I'm increasing my options to increase my sovereignty. If Puerto Rico got too crazy and I was living out in Puerto Rico last year and uh, I moved out there for tax efficiency, but then they were cramping down on my liberty. So I left because I have the finances to do that. Hey, sorry to interrupt. I just wanted to take a quick minute to tell you about my online course. As a listener, you probably know my story. In under two years, I had multiplied my net worth to over eight figures and my investments were generating enough passive income for my wife and me to quit our jobs. Since launching the Lifestyle Investor book and podcast, I've had a lot of people reaching out asking how I was able to accomplish this in such a short period of time and how they can start investing just like I do. My methods are unconventional. But I've always wanted to share my strategies and help as many people as possible accomplish financial freedom. And while the podcast is loaded with lots of alternative investment advice from both myself and my guests, it's not intended to be a comprehensive system that walks you through my step-by-step process. That's why I decided to create the Lifestyle Investor Course, a roadmap for anyone who wants to dive deeper into the world of lifestyle investing. Anyone can use my system, no matter what level they're at in their investing career. So if you want all my strategies for creating passive income and building wealth conveniently packaged up into a simple to follow course, visit justindonald.com forward slash course for all the details. Now let's get back to the show. And by the way, I want to jump in here because this I think is brilliant. Uh, number one, you said you live in the highest tax state in California, right? You move to Puerto Rico, which has the best tax incentives of any place. So it's not a state. It's a, a U.S. territory. So there are different rules. Uh, there are local tax laws that the U.S. Uh, kind of gives them the independence to have. And so you have this incentive to go there. You're able to reduce your taxable liability tremendously by doing so. But what I think is cool is once it started interfering with your actual freedom, you valued your freedom over the amount of money that you would save. And so I like that your core values are such in, they're so in alignment that instead of being like, yeah, I can save millions if I stay here, you said, well, forget that. My my life, my quality of of lifestyle is way more important to me than any tax savings I could possibly have. That's cool. I think that's a key piece that you hit on. And for a lot of people that maybe want to dig that out a little bit, the core values that you talked about. When I was trying to come back from the dead after 2008, (laughs) I spent like a decade in like personal development digging into all these like personal development and discipline and all these things. And and one, I read, you know, a dozen books on goal setting. How do I, how do I make a big goal and how do I accomplish it and all these things? And all these books, most of the books would talk about in the beginning, the first chapter would be on what are your values, your core values. 
And I'm like, ah, oh, that's like non new, new stuff. Like just how do I set a goal? Right. But then after I realized after a while, like you can't set a goal unless you understand what your core values are. And so I had to go back and do that. And, and it's been my guiding light from here on. And, and the reason why that's important is like freedom is my number one goal. Uh, I'm sorry, value, uh, freedom, um, helping others, always learning. Those are like three of my top core values. And so then once I've established those, I can't take, uh, I, I can't establish a goal or do anything that would violate those. So for example, I've had many times people have offered me jobs, good paying jobs. And in times when I probably needed those jobs and, and once or twice, I've almost been kind of persuaded to do that, but I know that it would go against my core value of freedom and it would cause stress in my life. And so I couldn't do that. Um, and so people make bad decisions because they haven't identified that litmus test of value. So that's a good piece to talk about. But um, also the other thing is that I think life is always out of balance at different times. And so, yeah, I moved to Puerto Rico to optimize for tax efficiency, moving from the, the most tax, uh, the, the most tax heavy state, as you said, in California, over half of my income goes away. Um, but but California and New York were competing to see who could be the strictest in the lockdowns. That's and right. so California was super locked down. Puerto Rico was wide open. My kids couldn't go to school. And so we thought, let's just go to Puerto Rico. And it was awesome. And it was amazing. And we paid, went from over half my income to less than 4% of my income going to taxes, which is amazing. Wow. That's incredible. I mean, it's incredible. You zero, zero cap gains tax and 4% income tax. And so wherever your income comes in, you can do the math on where that, that falls in. But then, you know, throughout the year, they kept getting more and more crazy with their mandates. And uh, in August, they put this statewide you know, Puerto Rico mandate where you basically have to show your show your papers. We'll say that show your papers to gain access to, to, to freedom, you know, and I believe that I was born free. I believe I was born with freedom rights. And uh, I don't believe that I should ever have to work for freedom to be to to to, to uh, move or whatever. And so um, they put that in August. But on my side of the island, they didn't enforce it. And I was like, oh, well, they're not enforcing it, whatever. But as of December 27th, there was a full crackdown and I couldn't go anywhere without showing papers. And I'm not going to live like that uh, for a bunch of reasons. One, um, I have kids. And uh, if anybody has kids, probably listen to the show, they would probably understand that um, my kids are a little bit older. This has hit them very, very hard. Their whole world has been completely changed. And, and uh, my youngest, she's 12, but like, she barely remembers a world before this. And uh, one, uh, my daughter at the kitchen table told me one thing it was like a year ago. And she said, and again, California was very strict. And she said, at least we can go outside again. I was like, what? At least wow. we can go outside. And that was like a punch in the gut. And that, that really changed the course of my life. And there's just one thing I'm focused on right now. And that's sovereignty. That's it. And, and I'm doing it for my kids. I'm doing it for my grandkids. Uh, and so I want to change the direction this world's going. And so I can't live in a country giving them my feet and my money, because if I'm vote, and a lot of my friends were there like, oh, I'll just get this fake thing. And you know, it's all good. And I'm like, no, I won't live like that. I am going to live in the truth. I'm going to build the world that I want. And that's just financial sovereignty. How do we use our money to build the world that we want? And um, I have to do that by me living in the truth and also by me vote, being, a, being a representative of that, but also using my money. So as long as they're getting my money, I'm telling them it's okay what they're doing. And it's not. And so I'm back in the tech heavy state. Um, I would gladly give up more of my income to live in the truth, um, to vote with my money than I would try to play that game. Well, you did buy land in one of the coolest I, cities I in the U.S., one of the most free states in the U.S., so that's good to hear. More than anything, I just love that you are aligned with your values and you're, you're living in integrity there. Regardless of what people believe on the topic of this, I think it's important that you are not you know, operating in contradiction to who you are, what your values are, what the values you've set for your family are. And so I, I really respect that. Earlier, you talked about how the system is rigged. And I think that this is something I really want to explore because, you know, anyone who knows the system knows it's rigged. Anyone who knows Wall Street knows that there are supercomputers, there are algorithms, there's timing where you cannot win, they're going to win. The financial system is built in a way where the average retail investor or just citizen in general is at a major disadvantage for people who save money. They don't invest it. They don't buy assets. They just save. Their money is literally becoming worth less by the day. Yeah. With worthless. 
Worth, <laughs> yeah, right? 40% of the dollars in circulation today happened in the last two years. They were printed or you know added to a digital ledger yeah. uh, in, in the last two years. So almost half the money in existence today was created to, within two years. There's no way I will ever believe that inflation was 7% in the month of December. But by the way, that is an all-time high, 40%. Yeah. Like, th- think about it. So 7, 7% is a 40-year high. Like yeah. That's the worst or you know the worst inflation in 40 years. And those are based on numbers that they pick that really soften the blow. We'll just put it at that. Uh, and so if you're not buying assets that basically inflate at the same value as the monetary supply is expanding, then you're losing money. So that's one example of how the system's rigged. I'd love for you to kind of dive into this a little bit more with how you see it. Okay, well, strap in because it's even worse than you think. (laughs) (laughs) So I just was in Houston a few weeks ago. I shared a stage with a former congressman, Dr. Ron Paul. I was super honored. Um, He started the movement of End the Fed back in 2009, super instrumental in in, uh, what I've done. He really brought the exposure into the Federal Reserve. I think before 2009, nobody even really knew what the Federal Reserve was or who they were, or what they did. And today, it's in it's in a normal conversation. People are, are understanding what's going on, and and it's there's a whole bunch to unpack in that. But without going into that, to, to kind of explain about this rig system, it's even worse than what what you think or what you were just saying. You, you probably know, but um, in my talk, I I went uh, as I love to do. I love to use history as a guide, and so I I started in this talk on on, on when I was talking with Ron Paul, and uh, a quote from Thomas Jefferson, one of our founding fathers, and he said, "If the American people will ever." If the American people ever allow private banks to control the issue of their currency, first by inflation, then by deflation, the banks and corporations that grow up around these banks will deprive the people of all property until their children wake up homeless on the continent their fathers conquered. So that's Thomas Jefferson. So he says, if they allow the private banks to control the issue of their currency, first by inflation and then by deflation. Okay. So that is the key piece there. Now you're absolutely right about targeting uh, the inflation rate, the 7% highest ever, but really what you're actually more right on is targeting the amount of money that's been added to the base. And so what happens is people talk about inflation, like 7% to think that you could put a single number on what inflation is, is ridiculous. So if I was going to measure the amount of water in a bathtub, you can't do that with math. That's like, physics and algebra. If I was going to measure the wind drag coefficient over a jet, you do that with a, with complicated math, not arithmetic. Inflation is also very complicated. That's why most people don't understand this. So for example, out there by you on the lake, uh, I, I know someone who bought a house um, a year ago for $10 million and just sold it for $25 million. That's 150% inflation on the price of home. But homes didn't in Kansas City didn't go up that much. Right. So it's a very nuanced, right? Like I eat steak, you eat hamburger meat. My inflation is more than yours. I'm in California. My gas went up more than yours or whatever. Right. And then in, uh, in Germany, their, you know, uh, like their energy rates went up way faster than anybody else's. And so like, it's all, it, it's all different. There's, there's billions of people. There's trillions of inputs that cause prices to, to move and change. And they all affect this differently. So what inflation is, is increasing the monetary supply. That's it. So when you increase the monetary supply by 40%, used cars go up by 35%. The national home average, yes, is 35%, but some go up 100%, some go up 20%, right? So it's a di- it's different. So the price is going up is the symptom. It's the money supply going up that's the problem. But here's where it is. So back to Thomas Jefferson, if they do it first by inflation and then deflation, it's those two things. And this is where the game is rigged beyond. It's not that they have high frequency trading. Sure. Yeah. For the average guy to think that he's going to get rich in the stock market, that's kind of ridiculous. Um, they have an unfair advantage there. But where the game is rigged, and this is where you and I, even if we know the game, we're not that insulated, is that over the last year and a half or two years, they pumped in $8 trillion, to your point. And by the way, more than that, that's what we know about. Right. right? That's what we know. It doesn't count the unfunded liabilities that are are out there and on the balance sheet. No, and- I'm talking about how much they pumped into the market. Yeah. 
Correct. I'm talking about how much they pumped in. And, and to your point, it's, it's actually actually right. I'm working on this uh, video. So we have the FOIA request, a Freedom of Information Act. And uh, there was a FOIA request put into the Federal Reserve to see how much stimulus they put in after 2008. And they fought it for two years. And then it got bumped. It went all the way to the Supreme Court. It's been 12 years and it just got released. The That's Supreme, right. It had, to, it had to go to the Supreme Court. And uh, they said that they stimulated, we knew about 700 billion, the TARP. Then there was about another seven and a half billion that went to uh, 700 billion, I'm sorry, to the banks. So it was about 1.5 trillion. The FOIA requests show 30 trillion. Way more. And way more went to the banks. Way more. And every big bank. Yeah. So um, the problem is, is they put in $8 trillion or whatever, whatever time period. When they pump money in, and they lower interest rates. What's happened is you and I, as investors, we're looking for all this billions of data, trillions of inputs aggregated into a number, and that'd be in the price. And we base our decisions based off of that signal off of the price. The problem is when they dump all that money, it artificially moves the markets. And now we're making decisions with bad data. And so in order to keep up with inflation, well, I need to expand my business. My demand is big. I need to buy new equipment. I need to buy this. I need to grow. I need to move. If I don't, I get left behind. But the problem is we're playing a game of musical chairs because remember, it's first inflation and then deflation. So what's deflation? If inflation is increasing the monetary supply, what's deflation? It's decreasing the monetary supply. So what's the Fed saying they're doing right now? Stimu- or they're, tight- they're ending the stimulus and they're raising rates and then they'll do quantitative tightening, sucking money out. So it's like a shot, an injection. They're injecting money in, everything goes crazy, and then they inject it back out and everything collapses around it. They create the booms and busts. We're not privy to that. I don't know what's in Jerome Powell's head, what he's going to do tomorrow. He doesn't tell me that. I can't read his mind. And so I was driving, it was like two weeks ago, I was driving down the street after I gave this talk and I was driving down the street and I was looking at all these small businesses in my town. And just, you know, little food delivery company or this new restaurant. And I just, man, I feel so bad for these people. They're doing the best that they can. They're risking their life savings. They're doing other, they're they're sacrificing time with their family, blood, sweat, and equity and tears just to have a couple guys in Washington just just suck the money right out and just suck the whole, just crash the whole system on it. So that's what's going on. And that's about how bad it is. That's why it's rigged. Yeah. And, and this goes to the point of being able to manipulate and control the markets. You know, there's the ability to control the, you know, the public markets, but, uh, or, or strongly influence them. But, but this is like bigger than that. This is like economic cycles where you're not allowing a free market. And so the type of, you know, like in Austrian economics, it's a lot more, you know, kind of free market letting things happen as they are versus trying to control, you know, we're about to have a crash. Let's pump more money in the system. Let's, let's inflate this thing a little longer. You know, Hey, things are getting really great. You know, things are booming. Hey, let, let's raise interest rates. And so that manipulation on the economic cycle uh, at, at some point is going to play out in a bad way. Maybe short term, it works, it helps, but long term, something's got to give. Yeah, definitely. And, and uh, you know, to your point, they've built this up so big. And um, in my talk, I showed this chart and it went back, you know, 150 years and it showed the booms and busts. And then I had a red line at, 2000, at, at uh, um, 1913, which is the year the Federal Reserve was created. And since then, the booms and busts only get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger because every time the, every time the system tries to deleverage, they have to pump it back up. And it gets so big, they can't manage it, right? It's so big. And um, yeah, that's, that's the system that we're in. That's why it's rigged. And it's, that's why it's super dangerous for us. And let's talk about this. You know, no one really knows when this is going to happen, but, uh, you know, inevitably there's going to be a market crash at some point in time. There always is. You can't just have a market continue to go up. Recently, we saw a lot more turbulence than what we've seen in a while. January has been a rough month uh, for public markets. They've been really great for private markets, or at least the private markets that I'm in. Uh, I'm curious your take on this. Do you have any, you know, ideas, thoughts around a market crash or just any major economic event? I do. Um, so, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's ridiculous. It's, uh, it's a crime that we have to try to read the Fed's mind to figure out what comes next. We should look at in- economic indicators and job reports and all these things to figure it out, but we should never have to try to read minds. And so the fact that there's a couple of guys that can change my destiny 
that's a crime in my opinion. But what do I think comes next? I mean, I'm, I'm trying to read his mind based off of previous experience where I see things going. This is a much bigger conversation that we should get into, but here's my short view on this. So I've been doing this work on these three revolutionary cycles. There's a 250-year political revolution cycle. There's a 50-year technological revolution cycle. And there's an 80-year financial revolution cycle. They're all different cycles, all different timeframes, but they're all three converging right now. That's why the world seems so messed up right now. And when you understand it from this lens, what's happening is on a 250-year timeframe, the world rejects centralization or globalization and tries to move back to decentralization. So technology is changing things and these leaders are losing their grip. The financial system is ready to be reset. About every 80 years that happens, 80 years ago was the Bretton Woods Agreement. When the entire world's financial system was reset, the whole world went to a gold standard and the dollar you know, backed by gold, et cetera. And here we are about 80 years later, and the IMF literally said, we are calling for a Bretton Woods II moment. What does that mean? They're going to reset the financial system. So they're telling it. We know this. So this we can use off economic data. So we're at the end of a long-term debt cycle. The Fed, the central banks have two tools, interest rates and monetary supply. Interest rates are at zero or negative in most parts of the world. And we've added uh, $20 trillion in debt in the last 18 months, $300 trillion of debt in the last 50 years. Like we, we can't do much more. When you and I are playing a game and we're out of moves, what do we do? We reset the game. So the system is a long-term debt cycle. It's ready to be reset. The IMF says they're going to reset it. So that's where we're at. What does a reset look like? Of course, Klaus Schwab wrote the book, COVID-19, The Great Reset. We hear him talking about this build back better. We need to uh, build a new version of capitalism, they say, et cetera. So what does that reset look like and how are they getting us into that? So where they're trying to take us, and this is a little maybe controversial, but if you read their books, I say, take them at their words. So people should read their books to hear what they say, because you may think I'm crazy, but I'm just reciting what's in their books. So what they're trying to do, they, they believe, you mentioned the Austrian lens, they believe that the problem it was socialism or communism, or, or I should say centrally planned economies is that there's not enough data. There's not enough input. And so they can't manage the price efficiently. But if they could collect all that data and put it into a giant database, then they could manage it better. So how do they do that? Well, if they can get our entire life into a database, so central bank digital currencies, which of course we're hearing a lot about, as a matter of fact, the Federal Reserve, I think a week ago, submitted their final thing for guidance. So now they're basically asking for open comments on it. China's already rolled theirs out. Um, so that's coming, central bank digital currencies. You're starting to see a lot of talk about um, global IDs. It's not safe to have anonymous users on the internet anymore. They want to push into global IDs. They, they can track that. Of course, you know, not get into the health aspect and those topics, but they want us to now show a pass in order to you know check in and get access to society. So if they can collect all that data. So I think that's coming. So we know the financial system has to be reset. Uh, we know they need these tools in order to do that. So you're asking about when is this crash and when is it happening? The way that I'm looking at it is they didn't just spend $8 trillion or $20 trillion globally to keep the markets from crashing, to just let it crash now. So they're going to try to keep it going. They're going to try to taper it down a little bit, but they're not going to let it crash right now. They'll just, I mean, if they'd spent $20 trillion, why not another 20 or why not another 40 right? Like they wouldn't stop now. I think, and this is only my opinion, I think when you look at it from a long lens, and this is a bigger discussion, but- they're not ready to reset the game yet because the new game isn't ready to be played yet. They need those couple of pieces, the central bank digital currencies, they need to be in place yet. I think we got another 12 to 24 months before that's ready. I think they're going to try to keep the game going a little bit longer. I think they're going to continue to jawbone. They'll talk about raising rates. They'll talk about this. They've already moved the market without doing anything. All they do is say something. And so they'll talk about it. They'll get the market to move. Uh, you'll you've start to see a lot of rhetoric in the news about... Um, Elizabeth Warren said, these turkey producers are greedy. We should talk about they're taking too much value. Um, Biden says, I'm going to call the SEC on the gas companies. Why are they gouging on gas? They're starting to talk about price fixing. So they can, and they're talking about changing the CPI basket. So they change the CPI basket. They pr price fix a little bit. That keeps the prices from rising too fast. They job own a little bit about what they're going to do. And they extend the game. I think it goes another 12 to 24 months until they're ready. Then they let the market crash. and then. Hey, we have this new system and they roll it out. Yeah. And you're seeing some of the beginnings of this where the banks are really looking to be able to control every and any transaction, you know, $600 and above. I mean, that to me is a big red flag 
that instead of, you know, making a note here, red flag at a $10,000 transaction or close to a $10,000 transaction that we're lowering that to $600. That and and and, and just 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 to hit on that for one second. So what a lot of people don't know is that you know obviously in March 2020 is when the market crashed. You know the economy was locked down, et cetera. But what people don't know, a lot of people don't know, is in September of 2019, six whatever, however, a few months before, the the whole banking system froze. It seized up overnight. So there's this repurchase market where the banks loan money back and forth to each other. I won't go deep into it. But basically, it locked up. It seized overnight. And the Fed had to jump in and put $50 billion in overnight in order to keep the banking system from seizing up. Well, it was $50 billion one night, 50 the next, 50 the next, 75, 75, 100, 150. Next thing you know, it was a, a trillion dollars a day. And from September 2019 to July 2020, they pumped in $11 trillion. And that $11 trillion was didn't go to commercial banks. So the Fed is supposed to back backstop commercial banks where you and I bank, Wells Fargo, JPM, Bank of America. No, no, no. That $11 trillion went to investment banks that made risky investments. So they've given $11 trillion to these investment banks and no accounting or no, there's media blackout on that. But yeah, Justin, if you spend 600 bucks, we need to shine a flashlight up your skirt and find out what the heck is going on, right? Yeah. Not, not to mention, by the way, that we have, you know, uh, I think it's around $8 trillion in debt that the U.S. government holds right now that's coming due, that's going to have to be refinanced in the next, I think, year, less than a year, sometime this year. Yeah, well, what the Fed has been doing is all these treasuries is they've started taking all the long-term debt, the 30-year, the 10-year, and they're rolling it into annual and even daily. So now, like if you had a long, you know, you had a rental property that was on a 30-year fixed, and then you go to a, an annual that's that's volatile. Now it's daily. And so like that's going to create a lot of turbulence for, for what the Fed's doing. Yeah. And you know, the, the last thing I want to make sure that we get into, you talked a lot about wealth transfers and how this can be, you know, kind of maybe even one of the, the greatest opportunities if your eyes are open. And I'm curious to hear where you see these wealth transfers happening. As a Bitcoin guy, I know that some of it is there. Some of it's in the, in the crypto market. So I'd love to just get your thoughts on this real quick before we wrap. Sure. It's not a real quick uh, topic, but uh, but to talk about it quickly, one thing that I would uh, say is like, again, history. So if you look at like Weimar Republic of Germany is a perfect example. There's a book written, When Money Dies. If you really want to dig into it, that's a good book to read. But the key piece here is that we saw hyperinflation in Germany like we've never seen before. A loaf of bread went from 12 cents to a billion dollars inside of five years. At the point, people were selling anything. Eh, I've never, gold's never been higher. Real estate's never been higher. I should sell my gold. I should sell my real estate before the market crashes back down, right? Kind of like what we're seeing today. And people did. So they sold their gold and they sold their real estate and they ended up with cash, but the cash became so worthless, worthless that literally they would burn the cash instead of wood. The cash was worth less than the wood was. Wow. So what happens is at the end of a cycle like this, you'll see two things are uh, very prominent. One, speculation. So go go look at what happened in Venezuela or Lebanon. They turn to speculation. Everyone's trying to trade because that's the, you have to try to stay ahead. And that's, of course, the world we have today. We saw the record amount of job quits last month. Everyone quit their job to go trade options on Robinhood and trade cryptocurrencies. So that's where we're at in the cycle. And just like in uh, Weimar Republic, um, people today are like, you should sell your house or your car or whatever before Bitcoin, before the market crashes. Um, so if you look at a chart, I mean, it's like a straight hockey stick. And you're like, dude, I could have just bought gold here and held it here and I would have been a genius. But if you zoom in on that, it was crazy volatile. And if you traded that with any leverage, you would have been wiped out many times. And if you looked at your portfolio on a weekly or monthly basis, you would be stopped out over and over because it was, I mean, like insanely volatile. So how do we play this? What do we learn from that? How do we play this? Well, we have to understand this is the trend that's going on. We're in the last stage. They're openly telling us that they're about to reset the system. And so we need to be out of cash. Now is not the time to be selling your assets for cash. You want to, because what happened in Germany is they had a bunch of cash. It was worthless. They should have kept the gold and the real estate. And so I think we want to be owning real, we want to be holding hard assets. Hard assets are things that can't be artificially made. So real estate, obviously, and to the point earlier, Lake Travis real estate is going to do better than Kansas City real estate. So you got to be selective in what you're doing there. Uh, I think gold is going to be the trade of the decade. I think real estate is going to be even bigger than that. 
some people would say it's not a hard asset. When I say a hard asset, not because I can hold it in my hand hard because nobody can create more of it. It's, it's, it's limited in supply. And of course, the price of Bitcoin is extremely volatile. I mean, it was at 69,000 and now it's at, I don't know, 40,000, 38,000 right now. Um, but if you look at it zoomed out, it's been the trade of the decade. And so you, you, you can't survive a time like this looking like this. You got to look like this. Mm-hmm. And so um, understand the big macro picture understand what's going on, understand we're at the end of a long-term debt cycle. The only way this plays out is the central banks, they have to reset the system. The only way they can do that is to back it by something else. If they want to remain relevant, which they're not going to, and there's a whole nother talk into that. So we need to be looking over like a five or 10-year timeframe, and we need to position ourselves in assets, gold, real estate, and Bitcoin, I think, are the are the plays. Don't look at them on a monthly basis. Look at them on a long term lens. That's so good. Um, I I just appreciate your willingness to be very vulnerable here and share kind of where you're at, where your heart's at. I know you know that some things are a sensitive type of topic these days, and I just like being able to openly talk about whatever it is that people want to talk about. I think that it's important to have that freedom and that opportunity to kind of communicate your views and to kind of weigh them back and forth with other smart people uh, on both sides of the fence on whatever the topic is. So uh, I appreciate you sharing that. Uh, Where can our listeners and those watching find out more about you, Mark? Yeah. So um, I do a couple of videos a week on YouTube. Just search Mark Moss on YouTube. I have a nationally syndicated radio show. So you can search Mark Moss radio, Mark Moss podcast is on there. And then I do a, uh, I've been doing uh, live events where I'm trying to bring this financial sovereignty to people. We got one coming up May 6th in Dallas, Texas. Um, You can go to marketdisruptorslive.com and check that out. But I'm just, you know, as you said, you thank me for being vulnerable. Um, I'm just trying to help people not make the same mistake I made. Because as I said, I have friends that have still never recovered from that. And luckily, I was good at making money and I was able to come back. I don't want to see people make that same mistake. And so I'm trying to do the best I can with that. So, yeah, watch the videos, um, get the perspective, come to the live event. And uh, yeah, that's, that's it. Mark, this has been absolutely incredible. And I just thank you for taking the time to share all this awesome content with us, these things to think through, the whole idea of buying assets and the value of that, uh, kind of where you see the markets going, short-term, long-term, wealth transfers. This has just been awesome. What a great time. And to my audience, I just want to end today the way I always end. What's the one step you can take today to move towards financial freedom and living a life that you truly desire on your terms, not by default, but by design? Thanks. And we'll catch you next week. Thanks for listening to the Lifestyle Investor Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, be sure to subscribe so future episodes are automatically downloaded directly to your device. You can also leave an honest rating and review over on iTunes. Not only do I read every single one, but it also helps me understand what content matters the most to our audience. And if you can think of one or two people who could benefit from this episode, would you share it with them right now? Who knows? Maybe they'll buy you something nice when they make their first million. If you would like access to today's show notes, including links to all the resources mentioned, visit www.justindonald.com forward slash podcast. Thanks again for listening. And I'll catch you next week for another episode of The Lifestyle Investor.